What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take up the recently announced fine by the Hamburg Data Protection Authority against the Swedish retailer H&M for over 35 million euros for data privacy violations. It's a cautionary tale. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, for another episode. Today, we're going to take up the always topical, always difficult, but always uh, interesting, a matter of subject access requests and some moves by the British government around this. Um, Jonathan, first of all, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. So, Jonathan, uh, Quarterly Compliance has a uh, client alert on this subject, and I was wondering if you just might take us through uh, with a brief reminder of what a subject access request is, but how the ICO or other regulatory bodies are beginning to think through the abundance of requests themselves. Yeah, sure. Happy to. And um, it has been, the last three weeks have been, uh, there's been a lot of GDPR activity. GDPR activity is certainly stepping up. But we're starting to see some original decisions of data protection authorities being revisited as well. And by my rough maths, over the last three or four weeks, we've seen fine reductions of around about 290 million euros. So, you know, ballpark, I guess, 250 to 300 million US dollars. And I think that's pretty significant, particularly when you look at the total fines levied. So, what's going on? Well, as a recap, you'll recall that what usually happens if there's a GDPR violation is you get a knock on the door from a regulator who asks to chat with you about the uh, inquiry that it's making either of its own volition or from a complaint from a business rival or an employee or somebody you do business with. And usually at a certain stage, the regulator will either say that it's closing the case or it might close the case on terms. So you have to do new training, you have to install a new bit of kit or whatever that might be, or it might say that it intends to fine you. And of course, it can do, it can ask you to put new remedial measures in place and issue a fine, like we've seen with some of the Italian cases, for example, one against Tim, a, a mobile phone provider that we've talked about before, where they had a substantial fine plus 20 remedial uh, actions. Now, at that stage, you can try and apply for the fine to be reduced. When a notice of intent is served, that's not final. And there are opportunities both to speak to the regulator who's talking to you and also potentially, if it's a fine across the EU, to speak to other regulators in other jurisdictions as well. And that might be a good idea because, for example, the average level of fine in places like Romania and Spain 
is significantly lower than the average level of fine in places like uh, certainly Germany is, a, Germany is a federal regulator, the UK, uh, etc. So there might be an opportunity to try and speak to other regulators because there is an EU procedure to sort of level out fines. But even if the uh, fine follows the notice of intent, so you don't secure any reduction at that stage, you can still re-engage with the case again by lodging an appeal. And in some respects, appeals have always been slightly theoretical. I give a shout out here to my colleague, Andre Bywater, who um, brought appeals under the EU antitrust uh, legislation successfully and has always argued that because the regimes are similar, then appeals have a decent chance of success under GDPR if regulators haven't got uh, all of their uh, I's dotted and their T's crossed. And that's the result, I think, of some of the cases here. We've had uh, two big cases in the UK where there have been fine reductions, in part because of representations that the organizations have made, and in part because what's called a COVID discount has been applied. Uh, in both of these cases, uh, British Airways and Marriott have suffered during COVID, and the ICO has taken that into account. But in the first, BA have had their fine reduced from 183 million sterling to 20 million uh, from the notice of intent to the fine. And in Marriott's case, from 99 million in the notice of intent to 18.4 million as an eventual fine. But as I've said, even if you don't succeed in reducing the fine at the notice of intent stage, then there's always the possibility of appealing. And uh, we've had a recent fine against Ticketmaster where they say they're going to appeal. And we've also had two cases heard recently in Germany and then just very recently in Sweden, where fines have also been reduced. In the one-on-one -on -one case in Germany, the fine of 9.55 million euros was reduced to 900,000 euros, so about less than 10% of the original fine. And we've had a smaller reduction in the Google case in Sweden. This was a case over the right to be forgotten that we've talked about before on these podcasts. And in that case, the fine was reduced from 72 million kroner to 52 million kroner. So that's a reduction of around about 2 million euros. So as I've said, I think strategies, I mean, obviously, everybody's main defense is don't commit GDPR violations, avoid data breaches, handle people's data properly. But if you can't do that, it's always wise looking with specialist counsel at whether there are representations that you can make at the, uh, um, at the notice of intent stage. And if there are not representations that you can make there or if they're unsuccessful, then it's always good to have a second opinion as to whether an appeal might be worthwhile. And as I've said, some staggering reductions using those strategies in the last uh, three or four weeks, uh, as I said, just to repeat that figure, around about 290 million euros of reductions. So certainly something worth considering. 
I guess my concern would be, is there a, a lessening of protections available for individuals making the request uh, in the form of allowing companies to, more time, allowing companies to actually hide behind the ubiquitousness of the number of requests or the amount of time that it takes to comply with the request? I, I think it's a mixture of of all of those generally. Um, in, in the reduction cases, the ICO has taken into account the work that both uh, corporations uh, have done to try and stop these things happening again. Marriott's a somewhat unusual case in that it was a legacy database that they acquired as part of a corporate acquisition. There were obviously criticisms of the due diligence done uh, during that case, but the legacy system had been turned off. So the chances of, uh, of harm were obviously crystallized and at an end. So I think in Obviously, at the notes of uh, intent stage, you're always trying to put in place uh, remedial action and and, and and mitigation. And we found that that in breaches of all shapes and sizes, it's always worth looking at that from the get-go. Ideally, within the 72-hour reporting window, if you can put in place some remedial measures or some mitigation, so for example a new training program or greater awareness or simple things like if it's a hard copy data breach where a a laptop bag was lost, making sure everyone puts locks on those laptop boxes. If you can get uh, proactive very early on and persuade a regulator that you've understood what the issues were (laughs) and how they can be um, and and how they can be uh, ameliorated, then I think you get credit from that from regulators. And that could be the difference between whether the case is public or not. But if you fail at that stage, then as I say, it's worth looking again at what you can do to try and uh, and, and, and reduce the effects on your business. And this disparity across the EU is helpful in terms of uh, setting relatively low fine thresholds. But also, it gives us a lot of intelligence about what data protection authorities are thinking good remediation measures and good mitigation measures uh, look like. And you can bring that intelligence to bear on uh, your circumstances as well. Jonathan, I was wondering if the ICO uh, guidance uh, speaks to (laughs) data controllers who might be involved in or engaged in big data and how that, um, what suggestions they would have to maintain your uh, GDPR legal requirements on accountability and documentation. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And obviously, uh, the deluxe version that you've got, Tom, is more than that. But we had a a client one time and we said, look, there's whatever, 65 people in the affected group who are carrying hard copy documents about without any padlocks on their briefcases. And the client said, oh, do you know how much padlocks cost? I said, yes. You can go to your local pound shop. You can buy 65. It's going to cost you a total of 65 pounds uh, versus your potential liability under GDPR of 17 million pounds. I know which I would rather do. Somewhat incredibly, they said they didn't have 
the right internal procedures to enable them to go down to the pound shop and buy padlocks. And, and uh, it's one of those moments when you almost think, then I will I'll lend you the money myself, go down and do it. Because regulators like the fact that you've been self-aware, you've worked out what the issue is, and you've fixed it. Regulators, from my experience, will often uh, do a full-blown investigation into a corporation as a last resort, not a first resort. If you can persuade them that you're self-aware, that you're prepared to fix the problem yourself, and you've got a better chance of persuading the regulator to launch the full meat of the investigation against somebody else and not against you. For some organizations, they are alive to it and were alive to it in the past. But some organizations, I think, still aren't doing all that they can to make sure that they're not acquiring an issue. Um, I've, I'm not seeing, I'm seeing questions around data breaches in due diligence exercises, but I, I don't think I'm seeing that much on the ground investigation. And that seems to me to be somewhat strange, really. If you were, you, you know, if you if you're doing an investigation into the company's accounts, then you'll ask questions in the due diligence exercise, but you'll probably also send your accountants over to look at the books and check that there aren't any horror stories there. And I'm not sure why people aren't doing the same with uh, with potential data breaches and, and inadequate systems. I think in some respects, corporations are thinking, well, if I'm going to move everybody from their system to mine, why do I need to look at the defects in the system I'm acquiring? I think the Marriott case tells you the reason why. You know, there are 18.4 million reasons as to why you need to do that due diligence, I think, because a large fine, given that it's also calculated potentially on the turnover of the larger group, not the turnover of the subsidiary, can change the dynamics of a corporate deal. You know, you could be acquiring a bigger problem than the purchase price that you're paying. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of the time for this episode, but we'll link to the quarterly compliance client alert in our show notes. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Tom.
Jonathan, what uh, would you maybe distill down to three or four key takeaways from this enforcement action? Well, I think you've probably already hit on one. Education, absolutely necessary. Look at those six principles of good practice that we dis- uh, that we've uh, described on earlier podcasts and make sure that you can comply with them. Look at the lawful process that we've said in the past. Consent won't cut it for this type of data. Configure your systems properly. Uh, have a mechanism for responding to employee concerns uh, or, or requests. And then obviously, keep the training sec- refreshed, keep the data secure. And by secure, we don't just mean you know, hackers marching in the front door or hacking your systems, but we also mean the risk of co-workers as well. In this case, it seems that uh, many managers had access to the data, and it's hard to justify giving rights to all of that class of people. It's likely, you know, 50 managers is probably too much. It's likely that it should be two or three or four or five have access to the full set of data, and only then um, when when the need for those access rights is established. So there's uh, there's quite a lot of work to be done, I think, for many organizations. And this is a useful reminder, I think, of the sensitivities around HR data. Jonathan, this has been a fascinating exploration of a case that uh, raises many, many issues that I don't think many employers have fully thought through uh, for U.S. companies, um, real wake-up call. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens down the road. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert uh, that explores these topics in a little more depth in our show notes, so check that out. Also, uh, check out uh, the quarterly website for a great number of resources around GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. During this corona health crisis, please be safe, stay safe, and stay sanitary. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.